The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Martin Collar famously described Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And that's for good reason, because roughly 40% of the words in this book of Mark are dedicated to this one week in Jesus' life. The week that we are starting now. We have now reached a turning point in the book of Mark. We are no longer in the extended introduction. Starting today, we are going to enter into the life of Christ, the period that is known historically as Passion Week. Today, we consider the first 11 verses of Mark 11, which is what is usually referred to as the triumphal entry. We still celebrate this as an annual holiday on our calendar every year, Palm Sunday. But as we start this journey through the last days of Jesus on this earth, I want you to see what Mark intends for us to get from these verses. Everything that is going to happen, everything that takes place during Passion Week climaxes at the cross and culminates at the resurrection. Everything that Jesus is doing in this story is to be understood in light of those two future events. Part of the way that we know that is because Jesus has been so clear in speaking to his disciples, this is why I'm going to Jerusalem. The book of Mark and Jesus himself does not keep secret the fact that he is going there for the purpose of being killed by the chief priests and by the Romans, and that he will rise on the third day. So everything in this story, everything we see in, in Mark 11, 1 through 11, must be understood with those two events in view. So with that in mind, please follow along as I read aloud from the text. Verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem... To Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into, the villages, to go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had, they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please join me as I pray for the Lord's blessing on the, the preaching and the reception of this Holy word. This is not the word of man. This is God's divine, powerful, active, living word. And let's pray that he would use it to change our hearts today. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, this story is not just 
some parable, not just some mythology. Lord, this is active truth. This is a real historical event with great value for us. And so, Father, today I pray that you would help us, especially those of us who are very familiar with this text, not to think a little of it, not to overlook it, not to bypass it, not to ignore it. But, Father, today I pray that we would confront it, or rather, that it would confront us And that it would convict us and that it would change us, that it would make us more like this man, Jesus, who is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. Lord, we pray that today our eyes would be open to the truth of who this Jesus is. If there is anyone who doesn't know you in a saving way, who is currently in the room, Lord, I pray that you would open their ears to hear and give them eyes to see the gospel. Lord, that they might understand that this Jesus is their king. Father, today we pray that you would do a mighty work that is recognizable in our lives there would be transformation and change that we are conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. I cannot do this in my power. Lord, I, I feel desperate for you right now, knowing that I need you to work through me today, that I can do nothing standing here on my own. So, Father, please be with me, be working through these words. And, Lord, I pray that I would fade away and that they would see you clearly in this text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Once again, in this passage, we see that Mark is a phenomenal storyteller. His account of this event unfolds like a perfectly designed screenplay with three acts. So for this morning's outline, we will simply follow the outline as laid forth for us here in the text. Scene one, the preparation. Scene two, the entrance. And scene three, the departure. Let's start with scene one, the preparation. There are 11 verses in our text this morning, and Mark spends six of them telling us how Jesus obtained his mode of transportation. We must not miss what's happening here. It seems from a first glance that this is really not that big of a deal, right? Okay, so he got a donkey and he rode into, the don- uh, into town on the donkey. But this preparation by Jesus Christ is not just flavor text placed here without reason. It is intended to help us understand everything else that's about to take place. It is intended to inform us who Jesus is and what he is doing as he rides into Jerusalem. Notice that Jesus is commanding these disciples to go commandeer a donkey. He says to them, hey, just go into town, go into this village over there, and you're going to see a donkey tied up. And if we don't understand this correctly, it's going to appear to the reader that this is some kind of ancient form of grand theft auto. But Jesus says to his disciples, just go get the donkey and bring it back to me. Like that would be like me saying, hey, Steve, hey, Jonathan, I want you to... Go down the street here. There's going to be a Mercedes Benz. Hop in, hotwire it, bring it back. If anybody says, hey, what are you doing? Just tell them, sorry, the pastor over there needs it. It's not going to fly. This does not typically work. And if we don't understand what Jesus is doing, we'll just be confused and misunderstanding of what Christ has to show us here in this event. Please understand, this is very unusual. Jesus never does this. First of all, it's strange that Jesus would require a donkey. Or anything, for that matter, to ride on. We have seen Jesus for the last three and a half years of his ministry, traveling around from town to town to town, villages all over over Israel. And how many times has he ever ridden on any kind of animal? The answer is zero. Never in the scriptures does he ever have the image of being riding on any kind of animal until now. He's two miles away from Jerusalem. Is he just tired and says, I need a ride for the last two miles into the city? No. 
Secondly, it's strange that an animal would be tied up at the entrance of a village at all. And these days, this kind of an animal would typically live on a farm until it was old enough to live in the city. So this one is probably in that transition, moving from a smaller uh, uh, field area into a courtyard form of living. But they would not be tied up in the street. This is the perfect place to get your donkey stolen. So why would they tie it up here? It would typically be in another location in a courtyard. But it's amazing the fact that not only it's there, but that Jesus knows it's going to be there. He tells them, go to this place where there would be normally nothing tied and there's going to be a young colt tied there and just untie it and take it. This event is intended to remind us about the omniscience of Jesus. He knows everything. And not only does he know everything, but he has sovereignly ordained everything as the second person eternally of the Trinity. He had even ordained that someone, for some reason, unknown to us and probably even the disciples, would tie up this colt in this particular place at this particular time. He is is showing us through his understanding of what is out there that he is aware of everything and controlling everything. And I wonder what these two disciples are talking about as they're walking there. It's probably nearby, not a far village. And as they're walking over there, I wonder if they're discussing which one of them is going to untie the, the colt. No, I did, I, I did the hard stuff last time. It's your turn. I'll be the watch and you, you just untie it. We'll get out of there as quickly as we can. And I wonder what they felt like when somebody spoke up and said, hey, wait a minute, that's my donkey. Where do you think you're taking it? I want to just pause for a moment and just say, Jesus is never going to tell you to steal anything, okay? First of all, Jesus tells them to say he's going to return it as soon as possible. He's not stealing, he's borrowing. Secondly, Jesus is never going to tell you to commandeer anything regardless of whether or not it's to be returned. But thirdly and more significantly, I want to encourage you and say there are times when following the word of God, when obeying Jesus is going to put you in very socially awkward situations. There are going to be times when doing what you know is correct is going to make other people look at you with one eyebrow raised or maybe even speak back to you in a concerned way. There are times when it is appropriate as a Christian to leave a conversation or to walk out of a movie theater or to say, I'm sorry, I just can't be a part of this. It goes against everything I believe in as a Christian. And there are times when you will do that and people will look at you and say, what is wrong with you? That is, what is, what is up with you? And your response must be that I must honor Christ rather than men. I am seeking his approval and not yours. There are times when honoring Christ will be socially awkward. But I also want you to see the disciples did exactly what Jesus told him to do. They were perfectly obedient in this very awkward situation. And I want to encourage you to be just like that. And they said, the Lord has need of it and he'll send it back here immediately. Please notice, once again, he's not stealing. He's borrowing. He will return at ASCP. In fact, at the end of our story today, he's going to come right back here to Bethany. And as they travel back past, it's likely they return the colt exactly where it was. And here we see the first parallel, though, to Jesus as a king in this text. You know, it's not normal for a regular person to tell another person that they're going to take their things and then return them. In America, though, in most states, not every state, but in most states, if a police officer comes to you and says, I need to commandeer your car, it is illegal for you to say, no, it's mine. You can't take it. You have to hand it over because they are working as a, an official government 
uh, officer. You can't deny them. Likewise, that is true for many people in the military here in the United States or people in our government. If the president came and said, I need to borrow your car, you have to give it to him, and then he will have to, of course, according to the law, give something back to you or return it. In this day, the same thing is true. But it was a king or Caesar who held this kind of authority. Everyone that you are, everything that you're about to hear from this event, and in fact, even the rest of the book of Mark, is all designed to show you Jesus in stately form, showing that he is the king. And here he's showing that he's a different kind of king than people expected. It was very, it was very accepted for someone like Caesar to come and just take your donkey and never give it back at all. They would never have to return it. But Christ says, not only will I borrow this, but I will return it. He is a good king. The people, though, who were anticipating Messiah were eagerly anticipating Christ to come and do something specific. They were expecting him to overthrow Roman rule and to reestablish the Jewish nation as the most prominent nation in the world so that they might be the pinnacle of human society, just like they were under the reign of King Solomon. That's what most people want. That's what they are expecting. When they are thinking of the Messiah, the king that is to come, that's what comes into their mind. And they were expecting this king to be a conquering king who would burst onto the scene with fire and fury against his enemies. And any king or rebel in those days would have found themselves seated atop a war horse. Not a donkey. Not a colt of a donkey, especially. But what does Jesus request? Not even a full-grown pachyderm here. Not even a full-grown beast of burden. He is saying, bring me the colt of a donkey that has never carried a human being before. And why a donkey? I want to consider several reasons here. First, to fulfill prophecy. Now, One of the purposes of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is that 500 years earlier, Zechariah the prophet had declared, Jesus is going to do just this. The Messiah is going to come humble, lowly, riding on a donkey. Here's what he says in Zechariah 9.9. Steve read it for you earlier. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. Does that not describe Jesus? Righteous and having salvation. Once again, does that not describe Jesus? And he is humble, mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus perfectly fulfilled every messianic prophecy in the entire Old Testament. And this is no exception. However, I want you to see that this is more than just a prophecy for prophecy's sake. The Old Testament does not declare things will happen just so that they will happen. It is not just the pinning of one time to another, and it is not just for the purpose of showing us that something is in God's control, although all of those things are true. This is for a very specific purpose, and it has intentional significance and symbolism of what Jesus is doing. So consider with me three more reasons why Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why was it important that he would ride on a donkey? that was never before saddled, that no one else had ever ridden on? Here's why. It has a lot less to do with Jesus as king and more to him being holy. In the Old Testament, if there was any specific religious event that would take place that would require a pack animal, that animal would require that it had never been used for what the Old Testament calls common use, that it could never have a yoke placed on it, that it could never have been burdened by a person sitting on it. It has to be a completely new animal set aside completely for sacrifice or for specific use. Let me give you two examples. One is in Numbers 19.2. It says, This is the statute of the law of the Lord that he has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer, once again, not a donkey, but a beast of burden, without any defect in which there is no blemish and on which no yoke has ever been placed. 
Or consider 1 Samuel chapter 6. In this chapter, the Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant. It has gone into their hands and it's wreaked all kinds of havoc on them, giving them, first of all, destroying their false god, and then secondly, giving them all sorts of tumors and other issues. And the Israelites commanded them to return it and have it pulled by a cart. What kind of a cart? A cart that was pulled by two cows that have never before worn a yoke. These kinds of events take place multiple times in the Old Testament to show us that there are animals that are to be consecrated for holy use. That means that they have never been used for common use. This animal, this little donkey was indeed set apart for a holy use. Was it not? It is carrying the most precious cargo in the entire universe. But there's even more to the symbolism of Christ on the donkey. It shows that he is coming in peace. As I mentioned before, a warrior would be expected to ride into Jerusalem on a magisterial war horse. One that was intended to strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. You might not know this to look at me, but I used to play basketball when I was in high school. And I was on our high school team. And one of the things that every high school team that we played would ever do and that we would do as well is before the game start, uh, before the game would start, that's when the mind game really begins. And what you do, one of the most important parts of the mind game of attacking your opponent is before the game begins, they turn on the music really loud and everybody from the home team runs out. They run around the court twice and then they begin doing their layup drills. And what they do is they show off the best parts of their team to the opponent. It is a time designed to be very intense because you want the other team to be immediately intimidated by you and your team. Well, I'm not the most intense or intimidating human being. Nobody has ever accused me of such. And so one time I was pulled aside by my coach and another player and they, they talked to me and they said, listen, if a ball rolls over to us from the other team, don't return it. If somebody else returns a ball that rolls from our team, do not say thank you. This is a time to show our strength. And that's not what you're doing. I just didn't know. I needed to be tougher. I needed to be outwardly more intimidating because that's the purpose of this drill. And typically, that is the purpose of a king entering into a city. And when that happened, you would see all sorts of pomp and circumstance. You would see military riding before them. You would see, you would see different animals placed there to show that he has subdued them. They would often be slaves that are carried out before them. They would be in chains. There would be their enemies who are shown to have already lost the battle that would be shamed in front of them. But Jesus doesn't do any of this. Instead, he rides in on a donkey. The last two miles of his journey into Jerusalem on a colt that was probably so small it could hardly carry him. We don't think about this typically, I don't think, but it was probably slipping and tripping its whole way there because it had never carried a person on its back before. This presentation was the absolute farthest thing from intimidation. That is not Jesus' purpose. Jesus was showing that he was not coming to overthrow the government. There's no reason to think anyone took it this way. No one saw this as that kind of an act. If it had been seen that way, Jesus would have been immediately arrested upon arrival at the gates by the Roman garrison. He would have been taken in and he would have been accused of trying to overthrow the government. Even the religious rulers never used this event against him in court. If they wanted to show Pilate that he is the enemy of the Roman Empire, why didn't they say, look, he rode in on a kingly processional? They did not do so. When Pilate is asking him whether or not he's a king, he, Pilate never makes mention of this entrance. Why not? 
because Jesus is the Prince of Peace and Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem in a manner that no one would ever perceive as a call to war or a threat to Rome's regime. As he is writing down, literally this is probably the most humble way he could go. He has just done miracle after miracle, including raising Lazarus from the dead. He has a good following. And this is probably, if he would have just walked in, it would have been more magisterial than this. He comes in peace. And fourth and finally, we see that he is revealed to us as the Jesus who is humble. The very same God that in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 says, The heavens are my throne and the earth is my footstool, is now being carried by a common colt of a donkey. It is the humility of Jesus that Zechariah highlights here in his prophecy, Zechariah 9.9. He is teaching us that Jesus chooses this steed, this animal, to show that he is a God of humility. So now that Jesus has prepared and he has received the animal that he will ride into the city, let's turn our attention now to the second scene in Mark's account. Look with me again to your Bibles and consider verses 7 through 10. It says this, and we will consider the entrance of Jesus. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who, had, who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming king of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Now at first glance, the crowd appears to assemble out of thin air. Where do these people come from? So who are these people and how is it that they came together here near Christ? Remember, first of all, that Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem for the purpose of the Passover feast. Every year at this time, the city of Jerusalem would swell from its typical 250,000 people to over 2 million. This is a massive influx of people. We in the West have almost no ability to comprehend the population density of Jerusalem during these high holy days. Over the past couple days, I've been watching on, on uh, my computer the, the feed of these people who are escaping from Florida, these people who are driving north, trying to get away, who, who have been evacuated and who are escaping. Over 7 million people who are leaving South Florida. The roads are absolutely jam-packed. They are filled to the brim. People can't get around each other. They're just sitting there on the highways oftentimes trying to make their way north. But consider that people in Jesus' day, they're not driving on a lot of different roads and a lot of different highways. There are only a couple main roads that come into Jerusalem and all of them converge onto the same entryways. And consider that they are not all dispersing like the people from Florida, traveling out into many different areas of the country. Rather, they are all instead coming together, converging into a city that the inside of its walls are only about half the size of Central Park. Two million people jam-packed together. So we are... Where are these people from? They're coming here for Passover. Some of them are no doubt travelers from all over the empire who are faithfully making their way back, as they're supposed to, to celebrate the Passover. But the book of John gives us even more insight into some of the people in this crowd. Not all of them, but some of them. You see, Jesus did not come directly from Jericho. He had been at Bethany for a time, and he had done miracles there, specifically the miracle of raising Lazarus from the grave. This was just days after Lazarus's funeral. This man who had died, Lazarus, was a wealthy man. He was a well-known man. He was a well-loved man in Jerusalem two miles away. And when Jesus raised him from the dead, many people took notice. So when Jesus raised him, 
people followed. It says in John 12, 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And a few verses later in John 12, 12, it says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast that Jesus heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches and palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who are these people? Many of them are people who have come from Jerusalem out to Bethany to see Jesus, the miracle worker, the man who raised someone from the dead. And now they are entering back into their own city alongside of him. So some of these people are miracle seekers. They recognize that Jesus is powerful. They recognize that he's a significant figure, but they don't understand who he is or how he's doing these things or why. They're probably the ones, these who saw the results of the miracle of Lazarus, they are probably the ones who begin to put their cloaks down in front of the donkey. They are probably the ones who are cutting down palm branches. They want to be on Jesus' good side when he's in Jerusalem. They're hoping he remembers their face, and they are hoping that eventually they will get something from him. They are making, as it were, a red carpet for Jesus to make his way into Jerusalem and towards the cross. What they do not seem to understand, though, is that this is a sign of a king. This is what would rightfully done, be done for a king who is entering into his kingdom. We read of this, for example, in 2 Kings chapter 9 in the Old Testament, when Jehu becomes king. There's a lot of things that surround this story. Very interesting. I encourage you to read it. But here's just one verse. It says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment, and they put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Taking off your cloak... And making it into a pathway for this man is a declaration. He is the king. But they don't seem to understand the significance of this kingly processional. As we go on through the sermon, I am going to do my best to point out to you many reasons why I believe these people, even the ones who were the most expressive and celebratory, had no idea that this was intended to be a coronation march or a triumphal entry. They had no idea that it represented a kingly entrance into the city. The crowds are once again, here in Mark, fickle. Every time we see them, I seem to say these same words. They are fickle. They are filled with the desire to see something special, but as quickly as they appear, we're going to see them dissipate into the streets in the hustle and bustle of Jerusalem. But you might say to me, if they didn't view Jesus as the king, why were they saying these things about Jesus? Why are they shouting these words? Let's look a little bit closer at what they were saying, and then I will explain why I believe the things I believe about them. First of all, they are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, first of all, this is a quote from Psalm chapter 118. The section of that Psalm, which is very relevant to us today, goes like this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is a, is a song, a psalm that would be sung by these people during the festivities every year of the Passover. This was a common thing for the pilgrims to sing as they were making their way into the city of Jerusalem and they would do so when the city came into view. 
as they are, many of them, walking many, many miles, sometimes 100 miles, 200 miles, traveling to Jerusalem for this feast. And you get to the last big plateau, the Mount of Olives, where there's the plateau and then a big valley and then Jerusalem on the next plateau. And you reach that point and you look out and you see it and you begin to shout, we're almost there. And you begin to get excited seeing the temple and begin to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, Hosanna. The word Hosanna just means save us. That's the direct quote from this Old Testament verse. But they're looking out and saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Please understand, this was a common statement that was made by all pilgrims about all pilgrims. They're saying, I am blessed If my entrance into the city is in the name of the Lord, when they say in the name of the Lord, they mean anyone who is going to the temple in humble submission and obedience to the father. If you are coming into the city in the name of the Lord, you will be blessed. And as they were saying these words, they're not looking at Jesus saying, there he is. That's the one. He's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Rather, they are repeating these words that they have always said, and they are surely speaking them about themselves and their own families. The deep irony here is that Jesus is literally the only one who had ever come truly in perfect obedience and pure motives in the name of the Lord. But there's more to what the people were saying here. They're also saying, as we see here in the book of Mark, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Scholars are divided on why the people are saying this. Jesus never says in any of the Gospels that he is coming to establish the coming kingdom of their father David. There's certainly confusion here on their parts. Unlike the previous statement, this one is not a quote from a psalm. In fact, it's not a quote from any scripture. However, it is known that this is, historically we know this, this is a a statement that was relatively common in this day. Most likely, this is a way for the people of Israel to sneak their own state of disdain for the Roman oppression into their religion. They are calling out their tradition and they are using this as a way the Romans can't stop them. They're not going to come in and say, hey, hey, what's going on here? No, this is what we always do. We always sing these songs as we come into Jerusalem. So they're sneaking this little thing in here. And then they are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Save us, save us from the highest places is what this means. And the one who is going to save them, ironically, is the one who is sitting next to them on the donkey. And they don't even seem to notice He is the one who has descended from on high next to them, entering into the city, doing exactly what they are asking God to do. And the crowd sang in absolute ignorance, speaking better than they knew. Or as James Edwards says of them, like countless other Passover pilgrims to Jerusalem, Jesus' entry was apparently regarded by the masses as a pilgrimage rather than a messianic triumph. This book is, Uh, doesn't tell us this, but the book of John tells us that even the disciples do not see the significance of this event at this time. John 12, 16 reads this way. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Well, when did they get it? But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. Now they get it after he has been raised. Jesus alone seems to understand the significance of this entrance into Jerusalem. We traditionally call this the triumphal entry. That's the name that for many hundreds of years has been superimposed on this text. But now most commentators do not seem to appreciate that terminology. 
Noted pastor and theologian C.J. Mahaney goes so far as to say, this is no triumphal entry. Rather, it is a death march. And he's right to say this. For Jesus knows that his processional will not end with the crown of gold on his head, but with a crown of thorns. Instead of being clothed with royal garments, he is about to be clothed, about to have his clothes torn from his body, and he will be on the cross while many will divide his clothes as they gamble over them as he is taking his final breaths. Instead of bowing at his feet, these people will look at him from the city walls and they will see him struggling to lift himself up on the cross to gasp for every breath he takes. And although it's unlikely that any of these people that are around him right now are the ones who are shouting, crucify him, crucify him, it's very unlikely these are the ones. But you do not see any of these people stand up to defend him either. None of them stand up and say he is innocent. This man is, is a good man. This man should be our rightful king. These people do not see Jesus as their king. But the bigger question for you today is, do you recognize him as your king? I want to take a moment to speak to those who are unsaved in the room. If you don't know Jesus, I want to ask you, if you don't realize he is your king, whether you notice him or not, it does not matter whether you recognize his authority. He is in charge of every aspect of your life. And your responsibility is to recognize that and to fall in humble submission to him. He is going to judge you rightly as your king. He is your authority. There is no way to step out from under his control. If you don't know Jesus, I just want to share with you the good news that we call the gospel. That the one who we see here on the donkey, this very same Jesus, is God from eternity past. He is the king of the universe, who created the universe, who gave it its structure, gave it its laws, gave it its form, and even gave it you. He is the one who has designed you and made you and created you, and he did so for a good purpose. And you who were created for the purpose of worshiping him instead have worshiped yourself and lesser things. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's me and that's you. But the good news is Jesus doesn't stop when he gets into the city of Jerusalem. He goes instead the next, this, this same week to the cross where he will die. Then he will rise. But that death and resurrection is the most significant event that has ever taken place. Whereby he took the sin of everyone who would ever believe on himself. And he paid for it so that those of us who are sinners deserving of his judgment would instead receive his mercy. If you don't know Jesus today, I want you to know him in that way, to know him as the true king, that you might live for him for the remainder of your days. Please don't leave without talking to me about that. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to know him. Also, though, for those who are saved, I want to ask you the same question. Are you living your life as though Jesus is your king? Or do you do everything the way that you want it, when you want it, never repenting of sin, never laying down your own desires, never doing anything that would inconvenience you for the sake of the gospel? Is Jesus your king? Yes, he is. So do you live like he is your king? Is he the king over your calendar and over your wallet and over the way that you interact with people and over your thoughts? Is Jesus your king? If so, and he is, then his commands are binding on you. I encourage you to live as though Jesus Christ is your complete authority and live in light of that all of your days. And that there are ways that you can pinpoint right now where you say, look, I am just not living like Jesus is king over my life in this area. I call you today to repent. Let's move now to our third scene in this story, which is the departure. We find these words in verse 11. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, 
as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He left. He just goes in, looks around, and leaves. This seems to be stunningly anticlimactic. But I think, as commentator Robert Stein, I think he gets it exactly right when he says, it's not what happens when Jesus enters Jerusalem and the temple on this day that is so noteworthy. But what does not happen? It's noteworthy what does not happen. This temple was built for the worship of God. It was intended to be the center point, the focal point to direct people's attention back to God for the last thousand years. Yet when Jesus arrives, no one recognizes him. He stands there taking inventory of all the people rushing around, selling animals for sacrifices, closing up their shops at the end of the day, heading home for the night. And when, you know, when he's standing there, no one notices him. When I was in seminary, I worked part-time at a, at a church in Indiana, and I worked part-time a night shift at a hotel in Kentucky. And there were some times when the shifts of these two things would overlap a little bit. Particularly of note was one morning when we did a men's breakfast. And so the, the church is about 45 minutes from the hotel where I worked. So the, the men's breakfast is on Saturday morning. I get out at 7 o'clock in the morning from my hotel. I drive the 45 minutes to the church. I get there at about 8 o'clock, almost 8 o'clock. And when I arrive, there are only two guys there. And I said to them, hey, can I help you get things ready? And they said, what? Everyone already left. Everyone's already gone home. It was, it was literally only around 8 o'clock, maybe a little after. And all that was left were four pieces of sausage and a cleanup crew. People in Indiana get up very early. So I got back in my car. I drove the 35 minutes back to my house. And I went to bed. By the way, men, our men's breakfast will not be that early. We start at 9 o'clock this Saturday. I hope you come. Please see here that Jesus' experience is not like that. It's not like me going to a men's breakfast and showing up and saying, wait a minute, I missed it. I'll come back later. I'll come to the next one. No, Jesus did not miss anything. It was a stroke of perfect timing, not bad timing. This was an intentional examination of the highest order. The following day, Jesus is going to return to this very same location and he's going to start flipping over tables. It's one of the most fascinating things. We're going to see it in a couple weeks here. But that's not an event of some random bout of fury. It's not a temper tantrum. It is a calculated statement that is based off of what he is seeing right here in verse 11. He is looking around to see the temple. Jesus knew that the donkey would be waiting. He knew that it would be tied up outside of the house. He knew that it would be ready to go. He knew that the owners would let them take it, right? Did he not know what the temple was like? Was he not aware? Did he literally have to go and see it with his own eyes? Did he not know how dead the religion of the people had become? Of course he knew. Of course he knew. But this is a pattern we see all throughout the scripture of God scrutinizing something right before he will judge it. Did God not know where Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden when he came in and said, where are you? Where are you? Of course he knows. But he inspected the garden before cursing them and sending them out forever. We were just recently studying about Sodom and Gomorrah this past summer. Did God not know about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Did he not know before he visited? Yes, of course he did. Yet he says to Abraham, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, because it is very great and their sin is very grave, I will go down there to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. Does he not know? Of course he knows. In the book of Revelation, 
we see the record of the vision that the Holy Spirit gave to John the Apostle. In chapter 1, he writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in white, uh, clothed in a long robe with golden sash around his, his chest. His hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, uh, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, from the, uh, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. That's the definition, explanation, description we get of Jesus. And when I saw him, I fell at my feet as though I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first, I am the last, and I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, that's a lot of information really fast. Let me sum it up like this. John has a vision. And in the vision, he sees Jesus, glorious and majestic, this king of kings. And he sees him walking like it is around these lampstands. What is he doing walking in these lampstands? Well, at the end, it tells us what these lampstands are. They are churches, seven specific churches of the ancient world. All of them now are in what we would call modern day Turkey. And he's walking in and around them. And he tells John, I'm going to give you a message for each of these churches. I am sending you with specific information to these churches. What is he doing here? This is a depiction of him examining the churches taking stock. He is scrutinizing these churches. And now that he has scrutinized, he is going to be showing them where they have succeeded and where they have failed and where there needs to be growth and repentance. So we see here in our text something very similar. He goes into the temple, Mark eleven eleven, and Jesus is examining it. He is looking around. He is declaring in his, with his eyes, he is seeing it, judging it, determining whether or not it is making its, uh, fulfilling its purpose whether or not it was directing people to the worship of God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he will see that it has failed so fully that the God who made the universe was standing in bodily form inside the temple that was designed to worship him, and no one even notices him. No one recognizes him. In only a matter of days, Jesus is going to render that building completely useless. That place, that place which was the central location for the Israelites for a thousand years will be absolutely defunct and absolutely devoid of purpose because he himself will become the final sacrificial lamb. And as a sign that the temple was going to have no further purpose, when Jesus died, God tore the veil in two that, that separated the holy of holies declaring that Christ had made the way of salvation for all who would believe and that that role of the temple was now completely finished. So church, I must ask you, what if Christ were to come here and to see into this room right now and look around, what would he see? Would he see true worship emanating from our hearts? Or would he see the same putrid religiosity of these Pharisees and religious people in Jerusalem? Would he see true worship? Would he see adoration being poured out toward him? Or would he see a bunch of people saying the same old songs that they've always sung, taking no notice that he is the one to whom they are singing? Church, he is here. 
he is here with us. He is present. He has promised, even though not in bodily form, I will be with you even to the end of the age. In a few minutes, we're going to have time to examine our hearts before the Lord. And if you worship the Lord, and if your worship of the Lord has become nothing but a form of vain repetition, just a religious activity, just a routine and meaningless religion, then repent and go back to the love that you had of Christ at first. Let's move now to our fourth and final point. This one does not derive from our text today, but I believe that I would be remiss if I did not include it as part of the larger scope of the Bible. So remember, I said there are three scenes here in Mark 11, but there is a fourth that takes place later in the Bible, the return. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in our passage was lowly. He is riding on a donkey. He became humble. He was humiliated in this way, coming peacefully. But the return of Christ is described in a much different way. And I want you to see that from Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. It speaks of his return this way. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, not a donkey, but a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and his name and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King in glory. He rules and he reigns, not just in the future. He rules and reigns today. And if you are not trusting in this king, please understand that Jesus is patient and kind. He is abounding in steadfast love, but his patience will not endure forever. There will be a time when judgment comes. His journey to the cross was not a show. It was not just some spectacle. It was a central event in history. The cross was the central event in history by which he paid for every person who would ever believe to enter into heaven. If you don't know Jesus, once again, I want to ask you, what is holding you back from worshiping the one true king? If you turn to Christ, you will be saved. In just a few minutes, we're going to observe observe the Lord's table. And I want you to pray with me now that we transition our hearts into a time of observing and examining ourselves before the Lord and that we would consider Christ fully as we take the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the word of God that you have given to us. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. You have not left us to figure things out on our own. You have not in any way abandoned us to our own intellect or our own perceptions. Lord, that you have given us your word. Lord, I pray that today as we have seen Jesus, this wonderful, perfect King, Jesus, humble, peaceable, riding into Jerusalem, knowing his fate, taking stock of all that is in the temple, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this same Jesus is ruling and reigning today, not merely just in our hearts, although it is in our hearts, but also ruling and reigning over everything, upholding even the universe by the word of his power. Lord, I pray that you would help us today to trust in this king, for he is trustworthy. 
That you would help us today to recognize he is a good king, who is a loving king, who is different than the kings of this world. Help us, Lord, to trust in him that his will for us and his commands for us are good. And help us live in light of him. Lord, I pray again, if there is anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would do a radical work of salvation, that great miracle of renewal and regeneration in their heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.